May we pray. Lord, please help me. You're frail, finite, fallible, fallen servant. To open my mouth with boldness and by the power of the Holy Spirit to declare your living word. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. May each of us listening to this, whether in faraway places through the internet or right here on Robeson Road, may we hear within the preaching of the word, the voice of the good shepherd saying to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, I want you to turn with me for a moment over to the Gospel of Mark. And this is Mark chapter 3 and verse 1 on page 1555. And we'll go back to Matthew 23 in a moment. I want to talk about the anger of Jesus for a moment. We don't often get that picture of Jesus, do we? An angry Jesus. An angry Jesus. But I want you to see what makes Jesus mad, really enrages him. And you see it here on page 1555, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Have you ever had it where people were looking for an opportunity to have a gotcha moment? You ever been in a situation like that? Gotcha, I caught you. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath day. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to, or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. I want you to see that for a moment. It's not their outward appearance. These were very good men. These were the cream of the crop. These were the members of the Rotary or Kiwanis or Civitans. These were the people who got the Paul Harris Fellow Award. Or these were the people who were honored with the Silver Beaver in Boy Scouts. There are two others above that, the Silver Antelope and the Silver uh, Buffalo. I was present at Fort A.P. Hill when President William Jefferson Clinton received the Silver Buffalo. That was interesting, from the Boy Scouts. These are good people. I want you to understand that. These are good people. These are people who are law-abiding people. These are not people out there rioting and raising cane. They're good people. 
They are the stable people of a community. They are the ones that others follow. I want to be like him. I want to be like her. These are role models. These are the ones that we would lift up for our children and grandchildren to emulate. But what's their problem? Twofold. One, they had hard, stubborn hearts. See, man looks on the outward appearance, said Samuel, to Jesse, David's father. But God looks on the heart. God's interested in your heart. That's the key. Where's your heart? These men had what? Hard hearts. And they were legalists. What is a legalist? A legalist has, we can say many things about a legalist. One, a legalist is a person who believes that by keeping the law, he's going to be saved. And Jesus over and over again teaches people that ain't true. He gave the parable of the two men who went up to pray at the temple. One was a Pharisee, and he was scrupulous. He observed everything. He even tithed, as he talked earlier in Matthew 23, on his mint, his cumin, uh, and, and uh, his, um, I forget the third thing. Oh, oh yes, uh, dill. So he tithed on that. Can you imagine going into your cabinet in your kitchen? And counting out dill seeds. Let's see. Nine for me, one for the Lord. Can you imagine that? They were scrupulous. So one of the things is that they believed that by keeping the law, they would go to heaven. And I found over the years that it is hard to break that belief in people. That's why I have been a hated preacher over the years down in Louisiana. Because I always went out of my way to teach a fundamental truth. I remember I was in my Boy Scout uniform when the advisor to the Order of the Arrow was killed in the line of duty. Six weeks before, he had called me and asked me how he could know he was going to heaven. And he had prayed to receive Christ. But he was killed. And I was invited to speak at his funeral and do the message. It was held in the largest Baptist church in central Louisiana because there were so many people there. When a police officer is killed, police people show up in mass. And I went on about him. His name was Glenn Devaney. He left his wife with two children, one of whom had only been born a few weeks before. And I went on about what a wonderful young man he was. I said he was as fine a young man as I know. But then, with a very pregnant pause, probably in the ninth month of a pause, I said he wasn't good enough to go to heaven. Wow. That is something, isn't it? He wasn't good enough to go to heaven. Wow. And people gasped. And that's been my punchline in funeral after funeral. That's why some people called me Crazy Bob. Because you just don't preach like that. That's uncouth. That's impolite. But I learned something 
My biggest mistake as a preacher was studying the preaching of Jesus. Did you hear what I said? My biggest mistake in preaching was to preach with the pattern of Jesus. Wow. And I want you to see it here. Jesus was angry at their hard hearts, at their silence. They were so bound up by their legalistic righteousness. The Pharisee prayed out loud. Jesus said he prayed to himself saying, I thank thee God that I'm not like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Or even like this bum over here who was a tax collector. Maybe he was armed. Maybe he had been hired for $85 billion. I don't know. But the tax collector beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. See, that's the ground we stand on before God. I always taught my children this little statement because I knew that legalism was the great danger to their souls. Bad people go to heaven and good people go to hell. You see, it's people who know they're bad and who cast themselves on God's mercy in Christ who go to heaven. But those who believe they're good and look down on others go to hell. So that's one aspect of legalism. The other is this. It's obsessed with the minutia, with the pettiness and the pickiness, and so concerned about breaking a commandment that the Pharisees built a fence around the law. If doing this is wrong, then this is logically wrong too, and this is logically wrong too, and this is logically wrong. And so they had created a whole set of written laws that are passed down called the tradition of the elders. And that's what they're holding on to. They're holding on to. Here's a man in need. Here's a man with a withered hand. Here's a man who's unable to work and provide. Here's a man in great need, but he's a loyal Jew. He's loyal to the God of Israel. He's in the synagogue because he wants to gather together with God's people. And he asked them, is it right to do good or evil, to save life or to kill? They remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians. Those are the followers of the Herod family. How they might kill Jesus. Do you mean that people can get so mad in response to the truth being said to them that they want to kill the speaker? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So turn with me back to Matthew 23. And we're struck with it, aren't we? At the caustic things that Jesus said. Going back to page 1537 where this all begins. In verse 1 of chapter 23, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. 
So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but they do not do what they, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. You see verse 4? They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. That's a legalist. A legalist will never find a way to help you out of your problem. You remember how they dealt with Judas? They bribed Judas to lead them to Jesus so they could take him secretly so as to avoid a riot. And then he becomes profoundly convicted. I've sinned. I've sinned against innocent blood. And he takes the 30 pieces of silver. And he comes to the temple. And he meets with the leaders of the people. And he says to them, take this money back. And they said, that's not our concern. That's your problem. So he throws the money in the temple. And he goes out and he hangs himself. Legalism will cause suicide. Legalism will break up a family. Legalism will destroy a church. Legalism will destroy a nation. Because the law without the love of God and the mercy of God is a thing that kills. Wow. And you see it here. I'm struck in the Gospel of Matthew, how the very thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the members of the Sanhedrin and the high priest's family said to Judas, that's not our concern, is exactly what Pilate says to them. He tries to release Jesus. And he said... I want nothing to do with the blood of this innocent man. You see to it. And that led them in their anger and rage. And never forget, the gospel does two things. It draws God's elect to himself. And it repulses the reprobate. It's a two-fold sword. It drives people out. It makes them crazy. And so they just said something that I think they lamented. Maybe... Maybe not. His blood be on us and on our children. Wow, a blood curse called down on their own heads because Pilate did to them what they did to Judas. And you can read on through. You should read the whole thing. All of the rationality, all of the legalism, all of the minutia, and it leads them to do what? Not to give help to people. And notice this word in verse 31, page 1537. So you testify that you yourselves are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Notice what he says in verse 32. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. I want you to understand something. What follows in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21 is about what happens when the scales of justice have been filled up. There's a parallel back in the book of Genesis where God tells Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What does it mean? I want you to picture a scale like this, a balance. And this is the mercy of God and this is the judgment of God. We're dealing with nations now 
with ethnic groups, with people groups, with cultures, with communities, not with the individual being saved, going to heaven or hell. This is what happens to a nation. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land, but not yet, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What happened when the iniquity of the Amorites was full? The scales of divine justice came down like that. And the judgment of God came on the Amorite culture because of all of the sexual depravity and all of the abominable practices they did for their gods. They even burned their children alive to their pagan gods. And God says to Abram, when the iniquity of the Amorites is full and the divine scale of justice, it's coming down. And when it comes down, I'm going to clean their plow. I'm going to wipe their nation and culture out. Now, you see Jesus' words in verse 32 of Matthew 23? He's talking to people who were listening to him around 30 A.D., And he says, fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. He's saying that divine justice is about to fall on the nation of Israel. Divine justice is about to fall on the nation of Israel. The people I'm talking to, not the elect remnant within it, but the culture as a whole, the people as a whole. All of the crookedness practiced at the temple because the high priest had money-making schemes. And he says, fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. Think about it. Generation after generation after generation of rejecting God's way, God's law, God's word, and going their own way was adding like, the, like grains of sand into a scale until finally it's full. And then he says, and just imagine hearing Jesus saying these words. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Wow, are those strong words? You know that Jesus was a hellfire and damnation preacher? You ever thought about that? That Jesus went out of his way to offend people. Why did Jesus get crucified? Have you ever asked that question? Well, it was in the plan of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The most loving act of God was when He abandoned His Son on the cross to die in your place and my place for our sins. But you know what? The most despicable, the most heinous, the most depraved, the most perverted The most abominable act in the history of humankind occurred in 30 A.D. when human beings killed the eternal Son of God. So on the one hand, the cross is the most loving act as God is concerned, but that same act is the most depraved and despicable, abominable act ever committed in the history of our planet because men killed God in his human nature. Who died on the cross? Jesus did not die in his divine nature. The universe would have ceased to exist. God died in his human nature because Jesus is both truly God and truly human. 
And so he's saying these words to them. And he goes on and on and he says in verse 35, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered. There are two truths here we need to see. First of all, you need to understand the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible is identical to our Old Testament. Identical to our Old Testament. That is, the ones you hold in your hands. But the order of the books is different. In the Hebrew Bible, of course, we have the first five books of Moses. They're the same. After the first five books of Moses, which are called the Torah, then come the Nevi'im, the prophets. And that's everything after that. Joshua, Judges, all of that. And then we come to the third section, which is, begins with the book of Psalms. And that's why it's often called uh, the, the Psalms. But in Hebrew, it's called the Kathavim, or the writings. That's the third section. What is the last book of the Hebrew Bible? It's Chronicles. And, in, and Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible is one big book rather than our two. And so what Jesus is saying to them is this. What was the first righteous blood ever shed on earth? It was when the homeschooled, home-churched, highly sheltered, never allowed to go around bad folks, Cain killed his brother Abel. There's a lesson in that, isn't it? You can do everything you can to make a child a child of God. But the ability to do that isn't in your hands or mine. Now, it's good to protect our children. Oh, yes. It's good to protect them from crazy ideas. And believe you me, having been born in the first half of the 20th century, I can tell you I've never seen so much craziness in thinking as I'm seeing today. But you cannot make a child a Christian. And so what happens is, this highly protected boy, because sin is rooted in the human heart, hated his brother, and because he hated him, he killed him. And you remember what God said to Cain? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. You know the shedding of innocent blood? Have you ever thought about blood? Can blood have a voice? I believe it can. I believe that innocent blood calls down the judgment of God on a culture. I have compassion on women who find themselves abandoned and pregnant. And certainly all sins can be forgiven and people can be forgiven. But make no mistake about it. Abortion is the shedding of innocent blood. And innocent blood. What about war? When people wage war unnecessarily. Or in a good war. A necessary war, I should say. There are really no good wars. But in a necessary war, when a soldier becomes angry and decides to just shoot his gun at random. Wow. It's like the man whose funeral I did less than a month ago. He was haunted. He had served in the Korean conflict. And he was haunted. He wept 
with his family and with me in July of 2021 about all of the men and women and children he had killed in Korea and how they came and visited him in his dreams. Wow. Shedding innocent blood calls down the judgment of God. There are other things we won't go into this morning, but the point is the first righteous blood that was ever shed was that of Abel's by Cain. And then he speaks of Zechariah. And Zechariah is the last martyr recorded in the last part of the Hebrew Bible, which is Second Chronicles. Zechariah is killed. His blood is shed. So what is Jesus saying to them? Look at verse 36. There's solidarity, of course. He said, you did it. But in verse 36, I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. What does that mean? I want you to think about it for a moment because it sets the stage for what we'll be talking about over the next several weeks in the Olivet Discourse. All of this will come upon this generation. Now that Greek word could be translated race or group of people, but contextually it goes back to its primary message in Greek, which is a group of people who are alive at a particular time. Now, if you think about a generation in the Bible is 40 years, 40 years. I served my last church full time for a generation for 40 years from 1975 to 2015, a generation. And what Jesus is saying is you people who hear my voice right now, Some of you are going to be alive and witness what I'm about to unleash on this city. See what he says there? He said, I tell you the truth. All this will come upon this generation. When was the temple destroyed? It was destroyed on the ninth day of Av. That's the Jewish calendar, the month of Av, which was the exact same day that the Babylonians had destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. I tell you the truth. All this will come upon this generation. Now look at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under your wings, but you were not willing. What is he saying? He's saying evangelism was his passion. Jesus wanted to win lost people. He wanted them to come to him. He wanted them to experience liberty and freedom. He wanted to see them escape the ravages and destruction that was about to be unleashed on the Jewish people within a generation. Come to me, he said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But the leadership got in the way of that. As a leader in a Christian church... That is an awesome burden on me. I don't want to do anything to block people from coming to Jesus. How can we block people from coming to Jesus? Because that's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priestly family was doing. Look back on page 1537 at verse 15 of Matthew uh, 23:15 Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees you hypocrites 
You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Wow. There are two kinds of evangelism. There's evangelism into a set of man-made doctrines that never touches the heart. And there's evangelism to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a preacher, I don't want there to be anything in my preaching, anything in my teaching that stands in the way of a person coming to Christ. Because this is the great truth. Never forget this. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, today, the 14th day of August in the year of our Lord, 2022, it can all be washed away. All washed away. Why? Because Jesus hung on the cross in our place to forgive us sins, so our sins, to take them all away. And many people who heard Jesus' voice were saved. As you see what happens that same year, 30 A.D., because his disciples saw him. One time over 500 people, some of whom were still alive when St. Paul wrote the letter decades later, saw him raised from the dead, saw him ascend to heaven. And then after he ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom he received from the Father, he sent And so people could have a changed life. You see, the the law says, oh, no, you can't come, you filthy wretch. No, you're not worthy. No, what you have done so bad. But Jesus always says to you and me, no matter what's happened, no matter all the mistakes, I look back over my life. And I look back at the mistakes I've made as a Christian. And sometimes deliberate sins I committed. I look back at all of the shortcomings I've had since I married Sandy in 1968. I reflected on it. How I neglected her. And when the children began to be born, first in 1971. And how I neglected them. I remember when Sandy drove to the church shortly after our son Ben was born. And I drove her into the arms of another man. How'd I do that? I neglected her. My wife was driven into the arms of another man because I neglected her. Because I put my ambition, my desire to succeed ahead of my wife and my then four children. Do you know what? The man into whose arms I drove her was the Lord Jesus Christ. She made a decision and said, since my husband isn't really there for me. And since he really isn't there for our children, because I was so busy, hours after hours after hours, night after night after night after night, she fell in love with Jesus. Jesus became my wife's husband. And through his love for her and their growing relationship, she helped me to rediscover my lost first love and so I love Jesus the point I want to make is this what if you've lost your first love what if you failed your wife what if you failed your husband what if you failed your children what if you failed and failed and failed what about all of the stuff the legalist would say to you well I'm sorry 
There is no hope for you. Get out of here, you worthless beast. That's the Pharisees. That's the Sadducees. That's the high priestly family. Get out of here. What's the likes of you doing coming into a church? But the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, do you know my Jesus? He's the fairest of 10,000. He's the sweetest, the most precious. He's the only one really worthy of our love. And He loves you just the way you are. And He invites you just the way you are to come to Him and to lay it all down at His feet. But the Pharisees say, no way. I don't know about you, but I want to be in a church where Jesus is central, where the cross is central, and where His love is what we're confronted with, with Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Because in the words of the hymn we sang earlier, those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. I need Jesus again today. Don't you? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would never be like those high priests who compass sea and land to get one convert, and when they made him, made him twice as much a son of hell as themselves. We pray rather, Lord, we will find a way to cut the Gordian knot so that sinners can come to you unencumbered and with the gates wide open to be embraced by you. Lord, we thank you that the self-righteous Pharisee son, older brother, who never did anything outwardly to displease you, who was unwilling to come in, we thank you for his younger brother who was embraced by the father when he came and couldn't even get the words out of his mouth, let me be as one of your hired servants. We thank you for a gracious God, the God that Jesus talked about, the God that cuts the Gordian knot, the God that sets us free, that there's not a circumstance in anyone's life here today that is impossible. Please, Lord, give us to believe that there's not a circumstance in anyone's life here today that is impossible to keep us from full communion with you, with Jesus, in Jesus' name.